Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a plant. Is it natural? Right. Like, it just, from what it just sways it a different way. You know what I mean? Like, am I really that far behind? <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> okay, sorry. We're uh, digressing a lot. Okay. Um, so, welcome to another episode of PH Divas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Dr. And Zainal. Poo! What? And I'm Liz. And we have a very special guest from the very beginning of my PhD program, Dr. Nora Hashim. Hello. Oh, Hashim. I'm sorry. Sorry. Hashim. Hashim. Okay. No, that's fine. You got it right the first time. Yay. But then I second Trust your gut. Immediately. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to have Nora on the podcast because I think I met her like the first week I was in graduate school. Like I think I remember meeting you at like the English department opening reception. And we started talking yeah. right outside the AD White House. And I was like, oh, this person is Ooh. so cool. <laughs> the feeling was mutual. Yay. Aww. And so Nora also Warm did fuzzies. her PhD in English. And she was a couple years ahead of me. Um, I just wanted to, to praise Nora a little bit. So she's, she's a combined MFA PhD candidate. So she not only did the PhD, she also did the MFA in creative writing. Um, she's a lovely person who's like, did so much to like put together the social heart of of my time at Cornell because she incorporated us people who are a couple of years below her into the Friday night dinners and so like for the, for almost all of my PhD we had Friday night dinners every Friday with our friend group which went such a long way in terms of creating like a wonderful social space. Um, yeah. And then yeah. afterwards we would go and and play video games. Yes. Which was also an awesome part of that night. I lived for those nights. <laughs> they were. And often, like, I feel like Nora and I were, like, the two, like, obligatory, like, we were, like, the token women in the bro space for that. Yeah. yeah. Like, because of, like, we'd ha- hang out with all our, our bro, nerd bro friends, playing their yep. games, watching them play Halo or other things. And neither of us is one of those, those, that stereotypical girl that doesn't like, that doesn't like getting into that space. So mm-hmm. I think it was always... A little bit, but but we were still always the token women, so it was an interesting kind of dynamic. But this anyways, is interesting. Uh, to go back to Nora's <laughs> professional life, uh, Nora graduated yeah. uh, from Cornell and um, went to Johns Hopkins as a postdoc. Um, and That's right. really happy to have Nora here to talk about maybe her creative writing work, um, her research on Muslim American literatures, especially our love of fantasy is something that she works on in particular. Liz, I think you'd be interested in this. Um, so, Noor, why don't you take it away? Tell us a bit about where you where you come from, maybe a bit about your personal intellectual academic history narrative. Sure, um, where I come from. Uh, well, I am of, um, I have, I have um, my family is from Syria. Uh, I'm actually an immigrant, uh, even though I don't think of myself as that, because we moved here when I was three months old. Interesting. Um, And, you know, growing up, I was subject to, or I saw a lot of representations of Arabs and Muslims in the media. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Well, I grew up in Chicago. Okay. Um, (laughs) For five years of my life, and then I moved, the rest of my life was in California. So pretty liberal state. But, you know, so I never felt personally harassed um, or very, very infrequently. There were, there, everyone runs into that kind of thing if you're yeah, uh, yeah. from a minority. Um, but so that's, that background is what drew me to English literature. I kept on reading and watching films and not really seeing myself or, or some, someone that I could relate to um, in a deeper sense than kind of your... Um, general um, humanist feelings of, of, of pathos or um, so so I so I was driven to kind of correct for that um, in English literature so that's what drew me into first a bachelor's in the arts and and um, in, in English literature and then a PhD and as for creative writing, that's just been something that uh, I've always seen the world or had a really vivid imagination and wanted to kind of share that. Um, so that's 
that's a, a kind of a compulsion for writing, a compulsion for creating um, characters and creating hmm. uh, lives um, that might uh, connect me with other people, help people see things through my eyes and help me see through things through other people's eyes. Um, so that's what brought me to where I'm at right now. That's pretty awesome. That's really cool. I'm curious, do you end up bridging, um, I guess, because you, you mentioned how you didn't see a lot of characters or things that kind of you felt represent your experience, but you also enjoy writing um, fiction. So how do you bridge those worlds then? Oh, they're totally interlocked. Um, you know, they, they thrive off one another. And I basically write what I wish I had been able to see when I was a kid. Um, I don't write children's uh, fiction, but, um, but I, I write the characters that I would have related to had I been able to see them at a, at a slightly more mature age, probably in my teens, something I would have <laughs> searched for at that kind of formative moment um, mm. of my development. So, yeah. yeah. So here's my nerd self coming out as well as my critical uh, thinking self. Um, how would you compare, I think this is a question both for your research and for your creative writing, like how would you compare like your work to like um, say some of the most famous Muslim American writers right now, um, G. Willow Wilson or um, Saladin Ahmed. Woo, that's a <laughs> that's a um, I that's hard to say because that asks me to judge my own work, which oh, is something oh, as a creative writer that I try to <laughs> you know try to quiet <laughs> that editor's I'd voice. Totally see you there and be like, yes, yeah. <laughs> I her back in the day. <laughs> but I have to admit, you know, both of them are really interested in the fantasy and sci-fi genres. Um, and those are genres that I have always, they've been secret loves of mine, things that I enjoyed, but I never saw myself, um, you know, writing myself and never felt completely part of deep in that culture um, you know, so, so I'm only now starting to take it seriously and think through the kind of, um, the kind of writing that they're doing. Uh, so I probably, if you wanted to align me with another contemporary Muslim writer, I'm probably, my writing falls a little bit more. I don't know if you're familiar with Leila Abu Leila. She's a British um, writer she so it's it's much more realist fiction that deals with kind of the political and um, cultural questions of the day uh, more head-on um, whereas G. Willow Wilson um, save for her work in the Camila Khan series um, her own novel and her graphic novel um, they deal with things a little bit more allegorically mm. um, and they distance themselves using the genre uh, in order to make things a little more accessible for the non-Muslim reader, which is interesting. That's what that I think that those genres allow for, um, that distance, whereas uh, my work puts you in the actual moment, in the actual um, kind of cultural milieu that, that surrounds us right now that makes sense so could you describe some of this I guess could you set the scene for some of your writing and one of the things I was thinking about is you described yourself as a Muslim writer and I'm kind of curious what does that mean for you and what, yeah, what does that, that mean in terms of the stories that you tell that term gets me in trouble a lot really? <laughs> well because uh, and, and see this is where I get a little you know, I think people who want a creative uh, a response from a creative writer can get frustrated with me because then I get a little too academic and I start talking <laughs> about the fact that you know we can't really um contain Muslim fiction the idea of uh, a religious monolith is a kind of fiction that we create 
create for ourselves mm. you know the idea that there's a christian world or a muslim world mm-hmm. and it that that is um that is predefined is actually a, a fiction you know an illusion uh that said there are certain things that we, certain i like to think of it in terms of um certain concerns or conversations that writers have okay um certain subjects that they come back to again and again that they're concerned with uh that that pull them together kind of um a family resemblance if you will uh so so for example what muslim means to me a muslim writer is anyone who might uh be grappling with the questions of Um, being a minority Muslim in a secular society or the the other side of things might be uh, uh, a majority uh, Sunni individual in a um, in a culture where a minority Shia uh, individual uh, doesn't have certain rights and and grappling with those conflicts so anything Mm -hmm. that deals with the kinds of questions that have religious implications. Um, I also, some of my writing pulls from Quranic texts, so the Quran being like the the holy text mm-hmm. of Islam, or um, with any of the kind of theological debates that are happening. Um, so, so sometimes it's not even a, it's not even a very um, it's kind of more of a subtle influence in the writing, uh, the same way that you get texts uh, in English that refer to uh, symbolism of uh, Christ on the cross. You might, I'm, I'm interested in kind of working that into American literature and having uh, kind of that Muslim uh, iconography, in a way, hmm. uh, inform the kind of texts that are that are shared in in our um, culture the way the same way that I am part of of the American tapestry. Absolutely. I was going to say that people don't really. I think people often mistakenly think of um, Muslims in America as being a very new phenomenon, but it actually goes back right to very early days of um, European colonialism because a mm-hmm. lot of the early slaves that were brought over from Africa were Muslim themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, even some of the early 18th century American literature um, talks a lot about uh, interactions with Muslim traders. Like there's one uh, book called The Algerian Captive. And like representations are generally like more on the positive side in the very early days, like very heavily orientalized, but mm-hmm. there is a longer legacy that isn't just the the satire well the, I guess this this flat image of the that, terrorists that we have in this Muslim well in this like Trump era thing so I feel like we've sort of been avoiding talking about the, the Trump era having to do anything with this and also <laughs> post nine eleven but I think we have to bring this into conversation now yeah of course and it's it's a great tragedy that the black Muslim experience mm. is one of those forgotten and um, you know, uh, really purposefully forgotten histories um, and that we only think of Islam in America with in connection to immigration and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so not that there's anything wrong with being an immigrant, but it gets loaded and packaged in a certain way uh, to, to create certain reactions and uh, certain consequences um, on the political stage. So... Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I read, and I'm not going to remember who the, the slave's name, unfortunately, but um, a slave who was so well educated and he was Muslim that he would write in Arabic. Um, he would write letters. And that's those because they couldn't be read by um, his his um, his owners. They kind of figured it was kind of just chicken scratching and didn't really mm. think much of it. Um, and he secured his freedom through through those writings. Wow, so it's it's a really interesting history that we're wow. starting to see some scholarship come out about it, um, but it's definitely an untapped kind of uh, um, area of of 
a sadly forgotten area of, of our own history. So do you feel that at the, I guess, saying, uh, speaking as a writer who, who's very much about realist fiction and placing it in this moment, does it mean that you um, feel obligated to um, work this particular political moment into your writing in some way? Or like, do you feel like, does has it felt generative for your writing or for your advocacy? Uh, uh, for advocacy, yes. Uh, thankfully, you know, it's one of those double-edged swords. Um, you know, my husband works for, I think I can do a little shout out yeah, for this. Yeah. My husband works. <laughs> my husband is the executive too. <laughs> is the executive director of the CARE New England chapter. Uh, CARE is the Council on American Islamic Relations, and they're a political advocacy and civil rights advocacy group in the United States, one of the largest. Um, and so we have this discussion between one, you know, with each other about how this Trump moment is horrible in the kind of um, trauma that's being that, that that muslim americans are experiencing at the same time however there's been such an outpouring of um love and kind of support um and a lot of opportunities to talk about what's really wrong uh when when Trump says certain things that have actually been said for a long time. He hasn't created these narratives, you know, he's just leaning on things that have been repeated over and over again. But now we're at a moment where we can really question it and say that ah, this is unacceptable. Uh, so silver lining in mm -hmm. a way. I, I, I don't want to say that very strongly because I've heard so much about people actually getting physically assaulted and children it's it's really horrible um in schools uh being bullied is it's yeah. too light a word for what's happening yeah. so i don't want to make light of that and say oh we we're in this great moment where we can capitalize it's that that's a little gross right yeah um, that's too safe but, to finish yeah but but if we want to look on the positive side of things yeah. that's how i would kind of frame it as for my writing and how it factors in I'm actually kind of a little disappointed I had wanted to I, I didn't want my writing to seem a reaction to a, a, a kind of very you know the the, the popular you know moment of the day mm -hmm. the, the thing mm -hmm. that's on everyone's mind this is something that, that I've been writing with because I've been grappling with it for, like, as you said, Zine, you know, in the 80s, there was, there was this surge of um, uh, anti-Muslim feeling uh, in response to the Salman Rushdie um, incident. There was a, you know, there have been these peaks uh, in history where Islam becomes a question of the day and being Muslim becomes the topic of discussion as if it should even be a topic of discussion that we discuss, like, is it okay to be Muslim or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, so my writing has always been grappling with that, and I, I feel a little bit like I missed the boat. Uh, I, I wish I had secured my writing a little bit more uh, firmly before all this happened. Uh, I didn't mm -hmm. want it to seem basically like I was taking advantage of, of a political moment, but it is what it is, you know. You know, I never I thought guess. about it that way, but that's, I can, I can see that because there's been such an outpouring and I personally have struggled with knowing that this, these are real raw reactions, but there's so many of them that I find myself kind of saturating. My brain is saturating. Yeah. And, in, and then I find myself trying to choose, okay, what do I digest? What do I not? Like, okay, so what is the thing that I'm really going to focus on that I can either make change about or when can I allow myself to feel? And at what point do I have to withdraw? And so that makes voices like the one that you have where you are – someone who's always been thinking about things and I think are probably in a very unique place to both write about and criticize these things because of your training, you know, like it's hard to hear that voice when you can also hear the average tweeter and average Facebook poster. 
with almost equal yeah. intensity, whether that's to be necessary or re- like well regarded or not. And, and the the thing is, I'm seeing such nice uh, moments of intersectionality, mm-hmm. as we call it. You know, there there have been you know um, um, with the question of internment with with the the Muslim registry, yeah. there have been yeah. so many um, you know Japanese groups and individuals saying, hey, this is not acceptable. Uh, and and speaking to, there have been people who um, went through the Holocaust and said, this is not mm-hmm. acceptable, you know, reminding of, us of the of the star that they were forced to wear. So there, there's almost, it's saturation to a point where I think the saturation allows for certain interesting uh, kind of um, conversations to happen between people that wouldn't have before mm-hmm. but you're completely right I, I sometimes i worry that they're fleeting and there's there's something lost um in, in that kind of that wall post that can't you can't find anymore after a certain time it's very hard to search there's no sense of um history yeah an archive being built up so speak yeah 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 i will also say that um i I helped sign this one letter that there's a, a, a big collective open letter that was signed for all scholars of Asian American studies. So I was like, yay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I saw that. I was really happy. To... Yay. For some reason, my Thanks. name is on there twice, but I don't know. It could be the other sign. <laughs> That's yeah. why. Like, I was like, twice. Your, your, doppelganger, your name doppelganger. Mm-hmm. I know. Damn that other sign. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that um, it's interesting because even it's if I don't know if like I don't, um, as a non-Muslim person if anti-Muslim rhetoric seems even more intense now than it has for the past decade but I have noticed like one thing I, I really been impressed like like when BuzzFeed does beauty articles sometimes they'll do ones that specifically focus on hijabi um, beauty mm-hmm. bloggers or like mm-hmm. in this one cartoon I watch called We Bear Bears it's really cute in Cartoon Network they regularly have characters in the background who wear hijab just like as as a completely normalized um, part of the landscape of what they're depicting San Francisco with also like bears act human, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, that is, it's, it's been really nice in that way. Um, I had a thought and I lost it, but. Or oh, the cover girl, there's a cover girl campaign with a woman wearing a hijab. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And it's interesting. Those, those garner such a, conflicted response from within the Muslim community. Oh, really? The Muslim American community. Yeah, because there is, there are the, um, you know, I hate putting labels, but let's say the conservative um, camp that says, well, the whole purpose of the hijab is to reclaim a kind of modesty that putting yourself out there as a fashion fashionista or hijabista, as, mm. as I've seen it called, um, it asks for a kind of attention that you're supposed to be um, choosing to forego, a kind of public um, um, consideration of your beauty that, that you're not supposed to draw attention to. Um, and then there are those that say, well, no, you can, you can inhabit beauty modestly and they don't need to be two conflicting things so that there is a lot of um, debate that rages in in Muslim circles about whether it is appropriate and I'm thinking especially when um, um, one of uh, I want to Noor I can't remember her last name her first name is the same as mine she's a (laughs) she's a reporter and she did an interview with Playboy. And so because of the kind of association of Playboy with a certain representation of the female body, there is a huge debate about whether or not that was kind of uh, religiously, ethically um, appropriate for her um, to, to do. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting. And it's, I, it's just so crazy for you to you're telling me about how people are considering whether it's modest or not modest to do certain things in cover girl. And yet people are concerned that they're the ones who are going to kill them. 
<laughs> um, just the kind of wide ranging assumptions about what Muslims care about, what Muslims want, and what bothers them in society. And go figure, it's not killing Americans. You know, that's not really. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ex that game. actually Sorry. is exactly what my writing is about. I want to write really boring. This is going to sound weird. My my writing for a long time, I wanted to write really boring stories about Muslims doing really mundane things and concerned with really everyday issues um, and just showing the kind of range of, of concerns that Muslims have that detached them from that idea of this extreme, this extreme human being in all senses of the word. Um, but that's that's harder to sell than you'd think because you can make it too boring in a way. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, I think we, we both get it because um, I think black TV is having a heyday right now. But I think it's also yeah. this point where they want you to be the sassy black woman. They want you to like, can yep. you say this line, but a bit more angrier? And I'm like, but that's not yeah. how I would say that. I That's not... You, like you always get sensationalized in this way because when yep. you're in a show or you're in a writing, you're not there to be just that character. You're there to be that black character, right? Not like just right, a right, normal right. friend. You're there to be their black friend or their Asian friend or yeah. their Muslim right. friend. Yeah, or their Muslim friend. And then it has to be like, you know, the lesson of the day. Or <laughs> or something, Sassy you know? comment. And that's the moral of having us there. Personal <laughs> father-boyfriend problems. <laughs> person who always has a job is being super nerdy or or the wise the 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 wise um but sassy yeah. you and know, always single person with God all damn. the comebacks yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know that's not that's not so innocent right you're less of a i'm serious you're less of a a threat if you're a single black woman mm. right um mm rather than having the, the possibility of procreation, of, of mm -hmm. being in a loving relationship with somebody, there's just, it, it kind of makes that person very safe hmm. in a way, right? That's true. I mean, like, especially, of course, in the American context, the Moynihan report was really instrumental in terms of pathologizing black women for mm -hmm. problems in the family. Mm-hmm. So what are you actually doing now? I mean, I'm kind of curious. I'm a STEM person, and I'm curious what your life is like as a writer or post-postdoc. I don't know. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm trying to stay on top of the work that I began, um, both in, the, in my dissertation, transforming that into a book, mm -hmm. um, and oh, also some of the new that. projects that I began at Johns Hopkins. So... Um, I'm, for example, I'm, I'm starting to think about writing an article about this concept of the novel being a secular form, mm -hmm. um, and inherently, um, so a couple of articles, the book project, and then I, I don't know that I should, I know a lot of creative writers that say never admit this while you're doing it, but I'm writing, have been writing a novel for quite some time. <laughs> And uh, now I feel the stress, the the pressure, not the stress, the pressure to kind of um, turn churn it out and and send it to an editor um, because I feel if I don't get it in now, the moment mm. might pass mm. when I I have even an opportunity to have someone look at it with interest. Um, uh, you know, and that's a silly way to think about your. Work, no, it's not but, at all. Uh, it's but, really not you know the 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 real the realities of of publishing and of um of the real yeah. world out there so working on the novel um and working on and trying to balance my creative work with my academic work which has always been something i i get i keep getting better at i think but i i haven't firmly i haven't quite gotten so can right you talk yet, about so. that a little bit how how do you how are they different? How is the creative work and the academic work different? And how do you balance that? Well, they're not, in my life anyway, in my writing, they're not different so much as um, they are the same thing. They are a, an attempt to do the same thing in different ways. 
Go on. Um, and so I get into trouble. So my creative writing, I have to make sure that my fiction, that my brain is not too much in it, and I'm giving the reader an experience rather than a kind of lesson. Mm. Uh, um and I have to make sure that my cre that my academic writing doesn't get too creative and uh, and whimsical. Uh, <laughs> this is too interesting. Oh no! Wait, I enjoyed reading this. This is not academic. <laughs> well, there is a certain tone that you're supposed yeah. to, a style and a and a and a kind of voice that you're supposed yeah. to maintain throughout an academic article and and to even get a little bit it's a little bit of 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 playfulness is okay but you have to rein it in you have to be careful mm. and sound serious and and so um that's something i always have to kind of keep in mind um you know for a long time i tried to give each like i would try to slot certain times of the day or I would try to slot certain times of the week to write. So every other day was a creative day and every other day. But it's very hard to compartmentalize, yeah. at least for me, my writing in that way. Because they inform each other so much. I'll be reading um, a, theor a theory, a dense theory book and think, oh my gosh, I have this idea for this short story. <laughs> Wait, what? And I'll have to leave that and, and jot down those, you know. And, and the opposite happens. I'll be writing creatively and it'll make me realize something about one of my arguments that I'm making um, for, for about, for example, Muslim what a what a Muslim fiction, what a text is doing um, um, uh, in terms of representing Muslims, or even uh, just how fiction works. It'll make me think differently about that. Um, so I I'm trying to learn to kind of move mm. between them, kind of like you know, skiing down that kind of smooth motion of, you know, a body moving from one direction to another instead of thinking of them as rigid. I really enjoyed hearing about how you translate um, the specific concepts from, from the Quran and like sort of taking them as a type of embodied theory for thinking about Muslim identity. And I was wondering, this is the topic we haven't really asked anyone yet on the podcast, but what for you does it mean to have faith in academia? <laughs> because I guess implicitly academia is seen as being like such a secular space. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps even in some field, like sort of being, I feel like having faith is like so not the norm and perhaps, uh, yeah, anyways, like I'm sure you could talk about it uh, much better than I can, but yeah. What, what has yeah. your experience been? Uh, my personal experience? Yeah, or just uh, talking it's, about it generally. It's a new terrain that's hard to... Um, that I've had to be careful about because I don't want to come across as proselytizing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I am very interested in, like, for example, you know, uh, using Islamic culture and intellectual tradition as a place from which to um, gain certain, you know, we, we look back on a lot of Western tradition to get interesting theories to rethink our current positions. I want to do something similar for Muslim um, and Islamic tradition. I want to look back into its vast and deep intellectual history and draw from it as a kind of uh, inspiration and a way of rethinking some of the things, some of the questions that we've come to, that we've kind of hit a wall with. Um, uh, so, so the Ummah is my first, that, that argument that I was making about the Ummah and Hijra, uh, those concept, co concepts coming from the Quran is my first stab at actually doing that, um, explicitly. I've, I've tried to do that a little more subtly, but this hmm. is my first stab at an explicit kind of argument in that way. Is it going to be coming in an article maybe, or... Uh, I, I haven't sent it out yet. It's it's in the final stages of revision. Uh, I'm feeling good about it. Yeah, I think it, it'll have a good shot. Um, and I have to say, I've gotten mixed responses. Most people have been really excited about this, actually. Um, there have I do get comments like, 
the one the the what prompted this this article that I'm thinking about about is is the novel secular. I've heard people say, well, you can't talk about Muslim fiction. There's no such thing because obviously the novel is a secular space. There's no room. There's something about the form that doesn't even allow for. And I found that to be uh, first of all spurious because because one of the first novels we could uh, link it back to. There's a philosophical novel um, called Hay Ibn Yaksan. Um, so it is a philosophical novel uh, that precedes that kind of first novel that everyone points to in, um, in the Western tradition. Uh, so, so I've gotten off topic, but my point being that... Um, I've gotten good responses and bad, mostly good. I've had some people who've tried to poke, you know, kind of try to see if they can mm. catch me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Try to, you know. So why do you think people have such a hard time envisioning Muslim fiction? Well, who, who decides what that means, right? Is it, because you'll get some people who think of Muslim fiction as uh, Islamically acceptable or or um, something that's not uh, not not appropriate things that are appropriate for a Muslim audience mm -hmm. to read, for example. Or some people think that some people will say, "Who decides?" who is Muslim. A lot of these writers that I write about often don't self-identify as Muslim, uh, but their characters are all Muslim. Um, or even if they self-identify as Muslim, other people might think of them not as mm -hmm. quote-unquote practicing Muslim or, um, or whatnot. So you get into trouble who gets to decide who is Muslim. And then there's, there's the interesting flip side where uh, the kind of... Um, Layla Abu Layla, who is the poster child for Muslim fiction uh, and writes about Muslim characters and Muslim questions of the day, doesn't want to be considered a Muslim writer uh, mm. because it, it limits, she feels it limits her kind mm. of accessibility, the kind of people makes her of niche interest. Um, so so that, that's, that's, that's a problem with how, how do you define Muslim? How do you define Islamic? Uh, even even if you defined it as Muslim culture, there are mm -hmm. many different Muslim cultures, some which don't recognize the other um, as, as true to the faith. So it's always difficult. Um, um, and, and, that, and that's something I have to, in my own writing, be careful about how I define that, um, you know. Um, That's a very interesting phenomena. I've been thinking about this um, with regards to um, how people respond to Trump currently. So as an example, um, there are people who say, I'll never call him President Trump. They're very vocally like, I'm not accepting this. But not only are they saying that they personally won't accept it, but anyone who shows any tolerance either to someone who supported Trump or someone who wants to have try to have dialogue and try to bridge that they're like traitors like how dare you you don't love me and it's like mm -hmm. I do love you mm -hmm. but I also I want you know so it's like this sort of hegemony that people are, uh -huh. want to kind of force on an ideal or a presentation or here's the movement and if you do anything besides this one thing for the movement then you don't care about the movement you don't identify with us and we're going to disown you but then how can they truly disown you because you also own it whether you like it or not yeah there's just so many parallels with that yeah this yeah and it, it's interesting because what I find most interesting about this moment is, or for me, what it's brought to light is I, I started thinking about the limits and potentialities of love um, mm. versus critique and when when it is ethical or not to 
forgive and love or and to reach out across the aisle um and when it, it's it's imperative ethically to say no this is unacceptable do you have an answer because right? i have um, no i honestly don't know <laughs> No, I've just gotten in trouble for even raising the questions, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I really don't know what the way to solve this. Um, I'd even solve the problem, but even just to, like, move forward. Because we have no choice but to move. So thinking about which direction you want to go, I have no idea whether yeah. it's give everyone tough love. Um, but I feel like, if any, if nothing else, the election has shown us that tough love wasn't working. Tough love just pushed people to an extreme. Right. I am... I am a little concerned uh, that this valid uh, question about or this valid move towards love and important for us to to maintain, we shouldn't react and and, uh, act out of fear, but I am concerned that uh, we've kind of gone into shock and the quote-unquote love is the easier way of disengaging Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we'll just mm-hmm. love each other and everything will be all right. And it's not. We need. We have some issues we need to resolve, and we need to talk about them, and we need, we need to be right, straightforward right. about them, um, uh, and and unwavering about certain certain lines in the sand. Um, so I tend to be a little bit more on the side right now of thinking that we, we tough love is is not doing it. That we need to we need dissent a little bit more we need um something uh, you know that anger is an appropriate feeling uh in in certain situations and a productive mm-hmm. feeling in certain situations and we shouldn't fear or uh um demonize anger um as long as 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 we're not it's not being used in a certain way that this seems very ironic for me to say, because a lot of anger is being directed at Muslims in America, (laughs) you know, they're getting hate mail. Yeah. Um, so it it seems ironic, but I'm talking about a different kind of anger, uh, um, an ethical Mm -hmm. anger that responds by, by saying, um, something is appropriate or inappropriate, not a kind of, an active, uh, revenge, because I think what we're seeing is just a kind of uh, uh, an acting out of fear and revenge rather than the, the kind of productive anger that mm-hmm. I'm trying to, to flag. Um, yeah, I think that it also is about like, how do, if we think love is a type of ethics, how can we make love not silence but help to begin yeah. a conversation? Um, I'd also mm-hmm. like to bring, like, for example, we've seen that some of the the response to Trump, for example, is the Women's March in Washington, but that's gotten mm-hmm. a lot of flack from the fact that it's being a primarily white Western woman's uh, white feminist view of, of what should be done. I've had conversations with another friend, Kof Shaila, <laughs> about a certain Facebook group, which is called Brunswick <laughs> Nation, which has um, been dominated by certain voices over others, and that when people, um, yeah. like women of color, usually are trying to bring up um, be the voice of critique and then they're sort of like yelled over like why can't you know why can't you listen like certain people's pain is mm. being held as being more valid than others whereas for me as someone who is trying to be an ally in this moment like how is my love motivating me to be an ally to defend other people is how I try or like how does how does love mean that we should listen rather than speak over others yes yeah that's key, I think, making sure that the love enables a kind of conversation rather than mutes a conversation that should yeah. be had. We recorded this originally at the end of 2016, uh, but recent events in January 2017 um, meant that we went back to our audio and we recorded a new portion to address the Muslim ban and the, um, many other issues that have gone on since then. Yay! I'm so excited. And excited, it feels weird to be excited because it's also like a solemn moment right now. In 20, I thought 2016 was the worst <laughs> and then 2017 was happened, you know, and then... 
Yeah. So how are you feeling? <laughs> um, energized. Um, I can't say, um, you know, the, the funny thing about what's happened recently is that it's not a break from the past. It's actually just a, a ramping up of what's already come before it. Uh, now it's just on steroids. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing that is surprising. Um, it's, of course, horrifying. I, I told a friend it's, it's not so much what's happening as much as the scope um, of which it's being applied to mm -hmm. and the speed at which things are kind of hitting us. Um, it's, it's hard to process and keep up. Um, but, but the actual, for example, the Muslim ban has its precedence in um, the Bush era and the Obama um, administration as well. So nothing so, so new. It's just, like I said, the scope, the amount of people that are being uh, kind of washed over um, and, and affected by it. Yeah, did you want to talk yeah. about some of the uh, fantastic activism that I know that you've been involved in or you know that other people have been involved in because um, Dr. John Robbins, uh, Nora's partner, is the executive director of CARE Massachusetts? Yeah, um, well, so it's funny because uh, the activism that happened in response to the Muslim ban um, really came really began almost with the um, Women's March for us, um, where I saw, again, this kind mm. of uh, the snowball effect. So I had gotten very excited about the Women's March, and I took um, my daughter uh, with me, and we had a whole group of women um, who were both Muslim and non-Muslim uh, allies who got together and made a group. We all wore uh, fuchsia scarves and... Um, protested together in the Women's March in Boston uh, and got a great response from the crowd. But, I mean, it was just a, a loving atmosphere, um, which is funny in our later... Comp so in our, you participated in the Women's yeah, March? Yeah, so I participated in the Women's in March Boston. in Boston, in, um, in the Boston Common, and I came back and I was kind of just gushing to John about what the experience was like and he was, he, we were discussing, we were having a conversation about his hesitation about rallies seeming like the easy way of protest and dissent without re actually having, and this is one of the um, critiques that's been floating around, right? What happens after the march? How do you kind of galvanize mm -hmm. that energy to make it actually have uh, an impact on policy? Um, and so I told them yeah, I, that I agreed that, that in the past marches had seemed like they just fizzled out at the end. But now this, this was a, 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 different, a different atmosphere where people just seem to be taking that energy and doing something with it afterwards. For example, my group still talks to each other and shares information um, about calling senators, certain action items. We have a, a continuation of this kind of um, group um, active activism uh, with these women that I met at the march. Um, so that, and so, so that, uh, so that just inspired him to start um, the the uh, the um, sorry the uh, rally at Copley Square. And originally he told me I, I he was like I'm hoping to get it just a thousand like that was his threshold he was like i i hope i get a thousand people and uh three days before we had he had five thousand people and i was like wow this is really and then two days yeah. before we were looking in the tens of thousands and then the night before it was i can't remember how many people said like twenty thousand said they were coming and then something like 60,000 oh said they were interested and we just had no idea how many people were coming. We were very, very excited mm -hmm. and nervous um, about making sure to have the right. And this kind is of... for supporting Muslims. This is... that, that was the, that was for the Muslim ban. So in, in um, kind of, uh, okay. Um, yeah, that was, oh my gosh. Against how many them. people actually came? So of course you never know for sure, but estimates were somewhere around 20,000 yeah. to 25,000 was the estimate. Wow. That was, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, it just, the, the square that Copley square that we originally, um, had imagined to have it in, 
um, actually didn't fit enough people and the cops had to sh um, shut down some of the streets surrounding it just because we were so many um, so many protesters so wow. it was it was amazing it was um, really and and you know John and I John really just gave the people an opportunity to meet I, I do think that a lot of it came from that that inner that democratic energy that people were bringing that they were ready to come out and make their voices heard and try to make a difference. So, I I, I kind of feel like we are in a year of rallies or protests. This is the year of the rally. <laughs> yeah, yeah mm -hmm. it seems that way. The year of the rally and the rooster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the energy like? I mean, um, sorry, maybe I should, I'm curious. Were you surprised by the turnout? And I'm. Um, particularly thinking about the non-Muslim participants. This was the first time that I actually felt that there was a critical mass of people who actually were even informed about the kind of uh, discriminatory policies mm -hmm. against Muslims in the country and were willing to um, say that that was not acceptable and, um, and willing to stand against it. You know, we've always had allies, but the, the sheer numbers were re was really heartening um, and and um, you know and and of course with it, it's it's called the Muslim ban but of course people are rightly so concerned that that this is an overstepping um, a, a constitutional overstepping that will only lead to further overstepping for other communities for other vulnerable communities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think that's also what galvanized people they recognize that this is a larger problem this is only the start of a larger problem yeah I'd just add that um, from my observations in the Asian and Asian American communities and activist groups a lot of parallels are being made to the uh, 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, and then also the uh, Japanese mm -hmm. internment mm -hmm. during during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So there are such uh, existing legacies within America, and I think that um, we're seeing a lot of Asian American activists and like older generations also stepping up to to uh, voice support for uh, m Muslims, and of course a lot of Asian Muslims as well, mm -hmm. um, because this issue does go so much deeper than just any one group. Um, maybe. Before we transition to the rest of the interview, uh, I remember I've been seeing a lot of discussion about particularly Muslim academics who've been affected. Would you like to speak to that at all? Um, that's interesting because I I haven't read yeah. as much about that, so you might be able to speak oh, to okay. it um, to it more. I I know that academics as a whole have been affected by the general policies that are coming down, but I I don't know of Muslim mm -hmm. academics. Although of course everyone is aware that they have to be that they have to um, balance critique with uh, a, a possibility of it having real consequences for your career, right? Mm -hmm. I guess I've been seeing it from, um, well, because of course the, the Muslim ban specifically has to do with like certain countries. Um, I've been seeing it everywhere from colleagues at Clemson and South Carolina to at UBC, for example, yeah, that yeah. Mm -hmm, scientists mm -hmm. who yes published on an article we're supposed to present it in the US and half of them are from Iran yes. so they can't even go and present their own paper uh, there's been a lot of other people shut out that being said I think what also has been really important even as we're highlighting these individual incidents is that people are saying like at the same time you don't want to have a type of exceptionalism like you know That's it's right. also important for like Muslims who are not academics right. who don't have advanced degrees mm -hmm. right. to ha have that type of acceptance as well well and it's not it, mm -hmm. I, it's funny you said academics so I was thinking those who are already in faculty positions but a lot of people who are uh, affected are also those mm -hmm. who are students um, who either have postdocs or some students who are finishing um, some refugees who, who were um, given positions at universities. Um, and now their their status is in jeopardy because either they can't leave, they can't renew visas, they can't, um, um, or they can't return. Now some of this is, it's getting so fuzzy because there have been these overturns with the federal, in the federal courts. Mm -hmm. So it's not really clear um, what's going to happen and where they're going to draw the line. You know, the, he flipped on the green card issue. Um, so we'll see what mm -hmm. actually lands at the end of the day. Uh, but originally when... And the ban was for 90 to 120 yeah. days. Right? Well, and, and everyone, there were some 
And that's there were some people who were saying, well, it's just a freeze, right? Don't freak out. On the other end of the aisle, I was reading things like, you guys are making a big deal out of this. It's just a freeze. And then, but the thing is that if you read the, the actual wording, uh, it makes possible, it suggests that after those 90 days, things will become more solid so that it's not a freeze. It's a trial period rather than a freeze. Mm-hmm. Mm. God. Um, maybe, uh... And I think that's important to understand. So many people, um, one critique I've heard in my academic space is when I say, hey, this is an issue, they say people are overreacting and oh, it's only for mm-hmm. 90 days. This mm-hmm. has been done before. And so getting people to understand why this is serious is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the wording in the executive order was so... Um, vague that that was what caused a lot of concern because it could be construed so broadly um mm-hmm. yeah sorry i just wanted to add that sure. i think i saw you post about this nor but there's also been some voices on the left who've been trying to claim that like the muslim ban is a distraction oh that that is mm-hmm. the and that like most disappointing thing because on the one hand mm-hmm. i i um empathize or or i am aware that we need to keep in mind that there are um, <clears throat> there are other executive orders, there are other actions that are being taken that that build a whole picture that's that's disturbing and and, and um, problematic. Uh, but it seemed like um, I don't even know how to put this um, kind of constructively, but it ju- it just seemed like a um, like throwing us under the bu- throwing. Muslims under the bus, like, this is not that important, let's look at this. And the idea, and the idea that you have to look at only one, that one will, will overturn the other, it's, that's not necessary, you know, you can look at everything all at once and critique it. Um, so it just, mm-hmm. it, I, I can't even, speak, as and you can tell, I can't. smarter than he actually is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm curious, what is one thing that you would like people to know? Um, like if you wanted to kind of wrap this part up, what would you want people to know about the Muslim ban or how it really affects Muslims that you don't think is being advertised as much? Hmm. I, I don't know that it, there isn't anything that... Um... I don't know that there's something that hasn't really come under the radar. It has, people have been very informed about it. Um, so if I had to put it in one kind of, let me think, for your editing convenience. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think what... Maybe one thing I just wanted to... Oh, sorry. What's, what I'd like the takeaway to be... Um, and thanks, Zine, for bringing this up, is this question of, of is it a distraction or not? Um, I, I felt heartened to see that there was this um, movement to, to accept Muslims as part and parcel of um, the fabric of the U.S., and to fight for their rights as much as to consider them a, a part of the fabric. And so it is all our responsibilities to fight for Muslim rights as as well as other uh, community, other minority community rights. And so mm-hmm. I hope that the takeaway is not that that becomes just a moment in time, but and that we think, oh, this was a distraction and we move on. I hope it becomes a sustained thing where we always think of that community as one of a diverse set of communities that make up the U.S. that we have to protect and that we have a responsibility to speak for when they don't, mm-hmm. when their voices aren't mm-hmm. strong enough. Uh, maybe one thing I just wanted to add <laughs> that, going. so another great mutual friend of mine and Nora's just posted this, Kylan Alexander. Um, so one thing mm-hmm. that has been going around is like this claim that <clears throat> Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have helped to thwart this rollback of LGBT rights. And and so it seems like some people are celebrating, but as our friend Kylan points out, mm. and this is how he wrote it, it's only possible to maintain the lie that Trump's executive actions haven't limited the rights of LGBTQ people if you maintain the naively privileged belief that there are no queers who are immigrants or refugees or Muslims yeah. or women yeah. or folks of color or working Ooh. class. 
This is yeah, pink washing wow. at its finest. And while I'm sure it appeases the deeply selfish queers I know who voted for Trump, all of them cis, white, gay dudes, shocker, I know, it cannot be any sort of justice <laughs> for queers who understand that intersectionality, compassion, and justice must form the basis of the movement. Way to go, Kyle. Yeah, that's amazing. Boom. Wow. Wow. Really well said. Yeah. yeah. God. I won't even try to follow up with that because that was just that is... eloquent, you know? <laughs> I think we're all struggling right now. How do you follow that <laughs> up? But, but it's so true. It resonates a lot. And um, I have to say, I've been very proud of 2017 um, in the sense that people are angry yeah. and protesting and going to the airport. And there was a science march. There's, there's some issues with that. But mm. just the outpouring of support that I've been seeing and... You know, even me, I'm trying to think, how am I going to get involved? What do I want to do mm -hmm. as my input? What do I want to say? Because now is the time. Mm -hmm. We are angry, mm -hmm. and we're actually doing something about mm -hmm. it. Scientists don't get up and do anything. <laughs> they really don't. They don't leave their labs, and all of a sudden, they're like, let's get in the streets? Like, I don't know if you understand how monumental that is. Yeah. Yeah, I love the that signs people, that people carry, like, not one. even a sign guy. Even the ones who voted for Trump are still, like, yeah. I'm sorry, you were saying. Wow. No. Even the ones who, are voting, who voted for Trump are talking about getting mm -hmm. involved and sending me emails. I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. Wait, you're sending me emails about how to get mm -hmm. active? Okay. Yeah, you know. I just hope it works. I hope it does something. There's a silver lining in a way that it really has. Uh, I had a friend post that, you know, the irony is that what what history will probably remember Trump for is that he, he kind of re-energized protest in this way that he probably wouldn't be too crazy about. Mm -hmm. uh, but... So there is a silver lining, and, and it's been very exciting, even though each protest, as you kind of mentioned, has its has its drawbacks. You know, the Women's March had really valid criticism against it, uh, and it, criticism which we should keep an eye on and, and think about, and um, mm -hmm. think about resolving those the issues that came out with um, the lack of intersectionality that was happening. Um, but that said, it has been a very exciting moment to be a part of, um, and hopefully we can sustain the energy for, you know, it's only been, what, two weeks? Uh, mm -hmm. We still have a long, a long road ahead of us, and I'm, I'm hoping we don't burn out. Definitely, especially since, like, there's, like, even events before Trump that need to have this type of energy, to, um, returning to it, like, of course, Black Lives Matter, um, the Dakota Access mm -hmm. Pipeline, like, it's also interesting that, like, the Women's March, people were so proud that, like, you know, the police were, like, so oh, nice gosh. about yeah. it, and it's like, oh, if it was yeah. Black Lives Matter, that would not have been of it, but I not. feel like, yeah. And it, especially in, in Boston, they, there was, um, the Boston police put out a, a report, like, thank you for the protesters for being so civil and, 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 and peaceful, and, and mm. I, it was just like, well, you know, Boston is predominantly white. I'm not surprised that that you have mm -hmm. this kind of relationship with the police and that the police feel that they can set out. A, and, and granted, they were very good during the protest. But of course, you have to see what kind of bodies were there that allowed for that kind of yeah. a feeling yeah. to, to resonate. How many pictures have I seen online where you have a a black person with no gear surrounded by mm -hmm. police and mm -hmm. body armor mm -hmm. and those like plastic mm -hmm. shields and like mm -hmm. AK-47s and like, does that make mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. Not at all. <laughs> but they weren't being peaceful. She's wearing a yellow dress or something. Yeah, like, there's nothing. Or the reports of young, young yeah. black and men so many being of those. seen as much older or being perceived as much older than they actually are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That scares me so much. Um, just thinking about mm -hmm. my brothers, thinking about my nephews, or just the yeah, the family members that I have. Mm -hmm. Oh man. 
So how can we hear more about the um, protest work that you and your husband are doing? Are you going to be doing any more things to follow up on the march that you guys had? Yeah, so um, so you can visit the uh, CARE Massachusetts website um, and see uh, they've been posting kind of action items, what to do if you're feeling that energy and need a, a, a way of um, of letting that out. Um, you can also visit the national care page as well and find the uh, branches that are near you wherever you're listening um, because they do there are uh, various branches um, uh, across the US. Um, and they you know they care I have to admit I am a I am just a, a fan. Uh, I don't actually work with care. I just uh, amplify their work mm-hmm. uh, since it's important to me. Uh, so I can't tell you specifics Absolutely. about what they're doing, but they are—they have kept up uh, the pace since the Muslim ban, especially. And they've been working on things beforehand. Right now, there's another executive. Um, there's another um, bill about the Muslim Brotherhood thing, which is a, a whole different can of worms, but will basically be used to target groups like Care and Muslim student associations on campuses mm-hmm. um, to try to discredit their work as um, as being connected to terrorism, which is often a, just a cover for, uh, we don't like the political, political work that you're um, succeeding in doing. Um, so they're, they're still, they're, like I said, a long road ahead of us, and, and um, I can't think of any specifics of what they're doing now, but their page is on Facebook, and um, we'll, we'll definitely let you know. So you should just follow them. We'll be sure to link to everything. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Hashim. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> Hashim, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Hashim, for being here. Hashim. Thank you, Dr. Hashim, for being with us today. Thank you. And we really appreciate you taking the time to give us your extra perspective on this issue. Thanks for having me and giving me a, a wonderful platform. Like I said before, I, I love listening to your shows, and I always gain something from them. So, so listen more to this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, we're still not used to that.